You're listening to Chicago Writes, a podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. The importance of respecting the tradition of oral history. Sure. This is this is a practice that is generations and generations and centuries old. Oral yeah. history is the oldest storytelling form that exists. Mm-hmm. This is an indigenous-based practice. Um, and so that's something to just be aware of. This is not just doing longer journalism type interviews. Earlier this month, I had the honor of speaking with CNN contributing journalist and author Nora Noose about what goes into writing an oral history. Her latest book, 24 Hours in Charlottesville, an oral history of the stand against white supremacy, was just released. I'm your host, W.C. Turk, and we'll bring you that conversation in just a moment. But first, a few announcements from our CWA calendar. Now is the time to join Chicago Writers Association. It's open to writers and authors anywhere in the world. Unlock a wealth of writer and author resources, programs, and benefits for just $25 per year by visiting chicagorights.org or click on the link in the notes below. Chicago Writers Association membership, by the way, makes a great gift. The submission period for the 13th annual Book of the Year competition closed on August 1st, 2023. Good luck to all those who submitted their book. Finalists will be announced in October. Winners will be announced in December. The winners will be honored at a ceremony at the Warwick Ellerton Hotel on January 20th, 2024. It's not too early to register for Let's Just Write, an uncommon writers' conference March 22nd through the 24th, 2024. Last year's conference sold out. Secure your spot today. Visit chicagorights.org slash conference. Wright City Magazine is currently open for short story submissions, but closed to poetry through 2023. See submission guidelines for further information. Visit Chicago Writes slash Wright City Magazine. Stop by the CWA tent at Printer's Row Litfest on September 9th and 10th, 2023. The Chicago Writers Association returns to Printer's Row Litfest. We will have 60 member authors and booksellers under our tent over the two-day event. The Printer's Row Litfest is presented by the not-for-profit Near South Planning Board. The Printer's Row Lit Fest is the largest free outdoor literary showcase in the Midwest, with more than 100,000 visitors expected over the two-day festival, which will feature carefully selected offerings from over 100 booksellers, everything from the tattered to the rare to hot-off-the-press newly published works. The 2023 Printer's Row Lit Fest will take place along Dearborn Street from Dearborn Station to Ida B. Wells Drive, rain or shine, Saturday and Sunday, September 9th and 10th, from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. We look forward to seeing you at the fest. And now, my conversation with Nora Noose. Nora Noose is an Emmy-nominated journalist and author. Noose Field produced Anderson Cooper's CNN coverage of the 2017 white supremacist riot in Charlottesville, Virginia. Before joining CNN, she worked as a local news reporter and fill-in anchor for the CNN affiliate in Charlottesville. She knows 
this community. Nora has also co-authored Mohammed Najem, War Reporter, How One Boy Put the Spotlight on Syria. Her latest book is 24 Hours in Charlottesville, an oral history of the stand against white supremacy, comprehensive, powerful, and compelling, just scratches the surface. If only the Warren Commission, by the way, uh, had been this thorough and exhaustive and dramatic. <laughs> uh, her website is noranoose.com. After all that, Nora, I'm afraid we're out of time. <laughs> It is so, so wonderful. Much. It is so wonderful to have you here. And and welcome to Chicago Rights, by the way. Thank you very much. I was just in Chicago myself for a wedding. So it feels fantastic. Fantastic. We, uh, we hope we hope we kept a little bit of nice weather for you. Oh, yeah. Nice. Nice. What a wonderful book. And amazing. I, I come from an activist background. I was really oh, wow. active in uh, in Occupy Chicago here mm. uh, for for a number of years, and uh, went to Bosnia uh, as, wow. a, as a witness, relief work uh, for Rwanda. This book really resonated strongly with me. It, mm. it, it was it's an amazing it's an amazing piece. You should be very very proud. Thank you um, so much. Having gone over this book three or four times, uh, this should take only six or seven hours. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, I was attempting to enunciate better the strategy behind writing the book, uh, writing a book like this. But one of the voices in 24 Hours in Charlottesville, Emily Gor uh, Gorchensky, writes her role this way. And so with that, I was like, well, what's my place? I'm not going to go up and fist fight a Nazi because I'll get my ass kicked. I'm not as good a fighter as I am in real life as I am in my head. And so I realized that the weapons I had were my words, which I think beautifully mm. encapsulates and uh, encapsulates the, the work. Thank you. I, I haven't thought of it in that quote in that way before, but I think that's true. I, I appreciate that. It's really the strength behind behind this book are are the words of, uh, of, of the participants and the story and a story of this this historic resonance that's critically important right absolutely and i think actually using those voices and telling the story and the words of people who were on the street that day that weekend mm -hmm. that summer really gives it a new perspective and a, and a new power so give us a little bit of background for anyone who might have been on mars in for the last six years uh that that don't know about this story and there i thought i knew quite a bit about this story going in there was so much here and and we'll we'll touch upon that in in a bit that that I didn't even know but but give us a little bit of background about uh the story in Charlottesville Sure so on August 12 2017 we had the largest white nationalist gathering in modern history in mm -hmm. Charlottesville Virginia and it saw hundreds if not uh, over a thousand there's different estimates of uh, depending on what you want to call them, white nationalists, white supremacists, neo-Nazis. At the time, we were calling them the alt-right, although that is kind of a misnomer, um, or or at least something that obfuscates the level of violence and hate. Mm -hmm. um, in any respect, these people gathered in Charlottesville, Virginia, which in part was chosen because there was an effort to remove Confederate statues in town. But there's other racist history in Charlottesville and reasons we can get into for choosing that town. Um, and the local activist community knew this was going to happen and warned leaders at various levels, uh, state, local, the University of Virginia, which is based in Charlottesville, 
and the riot, which you know originally was supposed to be a rally for the the alt right, went ahead. And what most people will remember as the kind of enduring images was actually Friday night, the night before, um, which was the torch march uh, mm-hmm. on UVA's lawn or campus. And then the street brawl the next morning that culminated in the car attack that killed Heather Heyer, one of the counter protesters. And then a few days later was what you alluded to in the, in the introduction, President Trump's, uh, there, you know, there were good people on both sides and kind of there was violence on both sides uh, argument. What drove the decision to render the book as, as an oral history rather than a narrative? Because both would have been equally compelling. I, I just happen to think that the oral history and, and especially the way you rendered it really comes comes across incredibly powerful. I think in a way I experienced the events of that day yeah. as an oral history. And and what, yeah. what I mean by that is that so I, I was in Charlottesville reporting all summer. We called it the summer of hate. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an earlier KKK march that summer. Um, there had been all this work and I had been really preparing myself to be there in the streets on mm-hmm. August 12th. And then I got my dream job offer from CNN in New York where my family is. And so mm-hmm. I ended up leaving a few weeks before August 12th and then went back into town on the 12th, mostly to get the rest of my belongings out of my apartment. My dad and I were driving down I-95 from New York when everything started happening. And so mm-hmm. I was on the phone with friends for that entire hours long drive, mm-hmm. listening to CNN, but only listening to it, mm-hmm. um, texting with people, trying to figure out what was happening. And by the time I got there, it was just after Heather had been killed. Uh-huh. Um, and I ended up spending the next week there in town. But I just had so many sources and friends that I knew so many of the leaders in town. And, you know, as a local reporter, I covered mm-hmm. local crime and local politics. So this mm-hmm. is exactly my wheelhouse. And my very first thought of doing an oral history on this was only a few days afterward. And I actually pitched an article to CNN mm-hmm. to do a short oral history article about the experiences on August 12th, especially in the local media and how they were responding. And, that, and there are there are advantages and disadvantages to to both, both the narrative telling of the story and and the oral history telling sure. of of the story. I can see a lot of a lot of potential traps and um, difficulties in in telling the fullest possible oral, oral history that um, that that you you could otherwise do kind of seamlessly with a uh, with a narrative history, right? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is making sure that you have enough of the puzzle pieces. And there were yes. definitely parts yes. toward the end of the project where I realized I needed certain things that I knew were factual, but I mm-hmm. needed an, another source to, to report them, essentially. It can't have been easy. There's this building tension and drama throughout throughout the book and that's rather difficult to do when you're using other people's uh words verbatim right yeah i had a bit of a strategy for that uh, a kind of a guiding principle which mm-hmm. was to 
only include quotes from people in that that they and thoughts from folks I'm not sure exactly how to how to say this it makes sense in my head but with information that they knew at that moment so there's a lot of things in hindsight that you know someone can tell the story and say I was walking down fourth street and of course now we know that the car was coming but at the time I didn't realize and then right. the car hit us etc and I wouldn't include that I would only include well, we were walking down and we heard this revving, but we didn't know what it was and mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And so the the process to putting this together was not letting hindsight inform. I mean, of course, hindsight does inform what we know, yeah, yeah. But, but in the quotes themselves, not giving it away kind of and, uh -huh. and trying to keep trying to stay very much in the moment. We're going we're gonna to come back to that uh, that strategy in a little bit, because I think that is is really uh, the exceptional power behind this book. But you offer a bit of history, mm. um, like the controversy over uh, uh, over Jefferson's contemporary ambiguity about slavery uh, without editorializing. And, and you do that throughout the book. You lay out you lay out these facts at the be at the beginning, though, you, you sort of give us this narrative history of of the town without without editorializing mm -hmm. was was that was that difficult was that conscious was that how did you decide on on not taking a position over something that quite naturally desires an opinion mm. well I could have written a whole different book that was yeah, a yeah. memoir of my time as a young reporter with not a lot of experience trying to navigate covering this national yeah. news story, because that's a whole other aspect of it. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing personally. And I think I have a lot of regrets still about how I covered it at the time, which we can talk about. But the point of this project was not to make it about me. Mm -hmm. And the point of the project was not to be like, here's what I think about this, but mm -hmm. was to amplify the voices of people in the community. Yeah. And yeah. my experience of what Charlottesville is, the town, not not the event, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. but but the place is, you know, I was living there as a northern transplant, as a scholarship student, but, but a merit scholarship student, um, as someone who had economic resources and financial resources, as someone who is white as someone who mm -hmm. uh, had all of the ability to, you know, go to the fun restaurants in Charlottesville and yeah. and, uh, and go to the best university there. Yeah. Um, that is very different than the experience of a lot of people who live in Charlottesville, have lived there for generations, and then who were in the streets actually defending our city. And, and getting them to talk about these traumatic memories. How did you begin building, first of all, relationships with with the the many people that uh, the many voices that are in this book and gain the trust of those involved and affected by the, by the event, especially as as you said, an outsider, particularly with public sentiments about journalism and news media and and race. How how did you build those relationships? Yeah, well, I think part of it was communicating from the very beginning that this was the goal of my project that okay. that I was able to say from the very beginning yeah. your words will be reprinted how you say them without editorializing from me and 
it will be presented with, for the most part, without commentary. I mean, there mm-hmm, are parts mm-hmm. where I have to string together the narrative, but um, I think that was one part of it is voices being allowed to actually tell their own story. A lot of people I actually already knew from my time in Charlottesville, it's a small town. And so I definitely was able to use some of my same sources as always, or have people vouch for me. But then finally, I was actually surprised by how many people I tracked down. And it was often the people that were a little bit harder to track down mm-hmm. who I was, I would be nervous saying, you know, I, I know you were hit by the car and mm-hmm. still are suffering. And would you ever be interested in speaking about that? Mm-hmm. And I was surprised by how many people said, oh my gosh, I've been waiting for someone to ask me. I've any, been waiting for years. Any pertinent or, or important voices or witnesses uh, that just wouldn't talk to you? The chief of police yeah. and the city manager. Really? Both, Yes. Both of wow. whom, um, at least one of them has signed an NDA for very uh-huh. much money. And both of whom have left the, the government in Charlottesville. There are a multitude of, because we're, we're also talking to, to, to writers out there who, who, may, uh, who may undertake a project like this. There are a multitude of resources online. Uh, there's an oral history association, oralhistory.org. Oralhistory.org gives four elements. And I wanted to ask you how you put these into practice. The first mm. one is preparation. But as far as the preparation is concerned, they, they recommend that if you don't have experience doing this, uh, gathering and compiling and 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 rendering uh, a a cohesive oral history, that you have that you have help or advice, mm, or you seek mm-hmm. somebody with, who's who's done it in, in the past. Did you receive any help at all I in did. this project? I did. I, I received some incredible help from a professional oral historian named Noor Alzamami. Mm -hmm. who was trained at Columbia in their Masters of Oral History program. And they provided a lot of insight into the project, not just on a process level of, Mm -hmm. you know, here's how to make sure you record it and transcribe it and uh, things like that, but also just the larger ideas at play. Um, They are a person of color. They're someone with an activist background, um, someone who's experienced police brutality and police violence in their own life. and having that perspective was also incredibly helpful. They conducted some of the interviews in the book themselves. Um, but I think they also helped me understand the importance of respecting the tradition of oral history. Sure. This, is, this is a practice that is generations and generations and centuries old. Oral yeah. history is the oldest storytelling form that exists. Mm-hmm. This is an indigenous-based practice. Um, and so that's something to just be aware of. This is not just doing longer journalism type interviews. But there there's a the that journalist journalistic aspect. So of course. And I yeah. and I do have this history of interviews and of interviewing people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that's also why this came naturally to me and why mm-hmm. I chose this format. Um, but it's also important to be making choices affirmatively mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. preserve people's agency and nuance. There's mm-hmm. a, a good, I mean, this is a little bit going off track, but for example, there's a big conversation about how to ethically transcribe people's language Correct. because for example, white people or mm-hmm. educated white people are often transcribed with things spelled 
correctly, even if they use uh, abbreviations or drop the last letter of a word. Mm -hmm. That's very common. Whereas often people of color are transcribed more exactly. Phonetically. And exactly. And this was a big controversy in the book, The Help, um, Uh which Uh which is a novel, but it rendered all the white people's dialogue in proper English and all of the people of color's dialogue in essentially a pigeon and so you don't want to do that but at the same time you do want to respect the aave of a lot of the black participants Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. transcribing is not even a neutral activity um there's a lot of questions like that to grapple with can i can see that that a black person speaking in in a quote-unquote black idiom could be perceived by another audience as being less intelligent or or uh not as not as educated or not as cultured as as the white counterpart who's uh, who's transcribed in a more more anglicized i guess vernacular yeah and the idea of what like proper grammar is for example it's not that it's proper or not it's that it's different vernaculars and african-american english vernacular english aave is its own proper vernacular but you have to respect it that way isn't isn't that a little bit solved by the the ahs and uhs that people kind of kind of inject into into their their normal language I, i don't know i mean i think there is a i mean even even transcribing for example like southern english versus like a southern accent versus like a a more as my grandmother would say a more yankee accent um (laughs) that even that is different um Mm. so you just have to make decisions about how much you're correcting okay Um, i'm trying i'm trying to think of like a good example but like the word didn't yeah most people when we're speaking quickly and i've probably done it in this conversation eventually just kind of didn't like didn't, right didn't. right uh-huh. they didn't like d-i-n-t right, right right and or written mm-hmm. i i say this my, my mom gets in my case about this i always drop the t's in written and i'm just kind of like <laughs> oh well like like it's been written down like start using almost a d sound mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But none of that, I don't think we would transcribe as anything other than the proper spelling. But when you do get into proper, you know, American uh, English spelling, but as you start to get into folks that have even wider divergences in accents, yeah, and if you want to respect yeah. that and render them on the page accurately, um, you, you do have to make choices about when to transcribe things as they sound versus how they're meant to be. Maybe, maybe just just a, a translation for uh, for that for that broader audience, right? Yeah, and then mo- everyone uses ums and ahs, like you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. And so, for the most part, I took those out. For, for uh-huh. the most part, I took out just kind of false starts and okay wordiness, okay. or if they kind of stumbled, and I mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. disclosed that in the intro. But then sometimes I left them in if it was like I asked a hard question and then they're trying to like, um, uh, well, um, I mean, and then like sometimes that informs the meeting. So, I mean, right, it's all right. 
these are all tricky questions. Yeah, no, and and I get that. I I, I was part of a um I, I transcribed uh, an interview with Vernita Gray, who mm. was a lesbian activist here in in the city, um, decades ago, uh, and what what to leave in, what to leave out was was a big consideration. I wasn't I wasn't the editor. I was the transcriber. I I put it all in. And and let let the editors and uh, and and filmmakers make the final decisions as to what they wanted uh, wanted to keep or not keep. But that that felt to me like like a decision that that I I couldn't make, um, and that it was important. Um, because she was she was such a brilliant woman that it was important to to capture as much of her nuance and personality through her words as possible in the transcription. Mm. So anyways, mm -hmm. um, we could we could go on about that for, for hours and hours here. But uh, so I wanted to go back to these four points. Uh, preparation right. um, was being close to the subject uh, helpful or hindrance for you? I think it was helpful. Yeah. And I think it was helpful because I felt such a responsibility to get this right. Yeah. Um, it definitely made it more emotionally taxing. Indeed. I mean, just on a like personal level, my nightmares mm -hmm. came back after after years of my nightmares about that week having gone away. Wow. Um, it was a very difficult emotional work, and mm -hmm. I'm not sure that I would do another project soon that was quite so close to me. Yeah. yeah. But I do think it made it as strong, like why it's as strong as it is. Okay. Number two, interviewing. Is there a synergy be between um, real-time event journalism and rendering an oral history? Yeah, I mean, I think there are similarities and there's differences between that kind of interviewing. Uh -huh. um, what, what's interesting is if two or three of the characters I, I interviewed the day after, so August 13th, 2017, and I still okay. have those tapes. And some I and then some of the same people I interviewed when I was writing the book in 2021, 2022. Um, and they definitely remember things differently. And mm -hmm. in some way, I mean, I think ideally you would have both because sometimes mm -hmm. you get the immediacy of it, but there's also this sense of sometimes having to like process things and then being able to look at them more clearly. Yeah. But I think in an ideal world, you would have both but also just recognizing like where a person's coming from, especially yeah. when it has to do with traumatic memories, when often memories can be even fuzzier. Uh, number three, preservation. There's an audiobook of 24 hours in Charlottesville. Do we hear the actual voices uh, from the print version? No. And so that is something that we talked a lot about. And honestly, we're still talking about uh -huh. where those tapes all go. Um, yeah, the audiobook yeah. is just an audiobook narrator uh, reading the book yeah, yeah. front to back. Um, but I do have all these tapes and I have hours and hours and hours of stuff that was never put in the book. Yeah. Um, but part of my process was telling folks that the tapes would not be released. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. That that was the original goal. That it was just going to be the book. And so I, I, I said, like, if you ever, if you say anything in this interview that you don't want, 
that as soon as like, if it comes out wrong or if you just say it and then you're like, oh, I don't want the whole world to know that. Let me know and we can put that back off the record. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so there is a lot of back and forth on the record and off the record in the tapes. Um, there's a lot of crying and and emotion. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, so if I ever was to do anything with any of those, I would need explicit permission and consent yeah. from those folks that at this stage... I haven't pursued. But because you're using their words, uh, and, and this this feeds to, to number four here from um, uh, oralhistory.org, access. Because because you're writing a, uh, a historic record, you have to maintain uh, an archive of that, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, when you say have to, I would say... Well, Yes, that is my imperative as a as a journalist, yeah. but also as a historian. I mean, I was a history major undergrad. I love yeah. history. I like think I do in many ways identify as a historian. And these are incredibly important mm-hmm, mm-hmm. archives in the public record. So I, I'm a novelist. Uh, I, I also wrote jur- a journalistic piece about the downing of Malaysian Flight 17 mm. um, and a, a war memoir um, I just completed a, uh, a history of, of our storytelling culture. One notable absence in every resource that I looked at in how-tos on writing oral history is the actual storytelling and drama part of it. Mm. That, and, and that is such an important and powerful part of, of this book. Talk about how, how you built the the necessary tension uh mm. the storytelling the using using those those tried and true storytelling techniques uh of of building tension and 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 relaxation and and peak uh climax and all that 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 really comes across really strongly in this book or maybe i'm just overthinking it and that's that's just a just a, a a natural part of of this story. I think both are true. I think okay. this was such a clear story, but I think you also, even in choosing your beginning point and your midpoint and your end point, I mean, I could have started the book years earlier yeah. in terms of the the time frame, yeah. and I also made a very specific choice to cut it off when I did. And one of the criticisms I've gotten just in the last you know, a couple of days since the book came out is that, oh, you should have talked about the months afterward and the aftermath. And, and so part of it was putting bounds around the scope that I could do. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't cover everything, but I do think there are some very basic storytelling tactics mm-hmm. like that rising action and kind of almost cliffhangers at the end of the yeah. chapters and like we were talking about earlier, kind of that idea of like, what did you know when? And I think the benefit of hindsight is that we do know what happens. Mm -hmm. And not Mm -hmm. only that, but the reader knows what happens for the most part. I'm not trying to create a surprise ending. I mean, we all basically know the story. And so I was able to put in a lot of almost foreshadowing. Time after time, there's a lot of anticipation both both in the narrative but but i was and 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 again i knew at least probably probably more than than a lot of people knew about this story but there was there was that that anticipation of uh what's coming next 
mm-hmm. and and that was that was fully the strength of of the way you put together these real words of 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 people thank you yeah. yeah I mean I I appreciate that and I think that was intentional um yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yet also it's what genuinely happened and I think there was yes. this sense of like a, there's a quote in the book that resonated with me as, as just someone who was living in town of like it was like a snowball rolling down a hill and you just like couldn't stop it and I think you know I made the specific decision to start the book on the first yeah. page with this kind of setup where you know someone said it was like a storm like it was forecasted in the future and you knew it was coming and then someone else says it was like lightning cracking like with the right the air right before lightning cracked someone else said it was like the snowball rolling down the hill and then, then the local newspaper said it rained and the skies cleared by the afternoon and so by just by starting there the, that's all things that people said to me but You're by right. starting there um it kind of captured this it almost takes on this biblical size yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and I, I mean it kind of was i mean this was yeah. it was wild to live through this in town and still i mean it's it is very raw still in charlottesville you you don't give uh give voice to the neo-nazi and white supremacist groups on the other side uh, mm-hmm. as it were um but but that was a conscious decision right or did you it reach was. out to richard spencer or nope. jason kessler or anyone nope. okay no, and I will say I, I've spoken to them before. I mean, mm-hmm. in the course of my news reporting. Um, right, right. I've known Jason Kessler for many years. I mean, I still, I quote from them still extensively in the book. I mean, yeah. from depositions and court cases and their words that have been captured on video. And, you know, there's absolutely ways that their story can be told without having to do a fresh interview with them. In in chapter five, you you employ it this way, which I I've, I found amazing i i was mm. i was floored by this some of their chants you um giving this rising tension tension a, a darkly lyrical texture um mm. which which was such an interesting vehicle does that become an allegory to the marcher's perspective and motivation because it has this it has this rhythm throughout the book where where you you, you keep feeding us these lines and and i have to say the story gives gives us a sense that these aren't people their cause is a thing a rabid dog uh, Mm. a monster a toxic cloud yes i mean i think they're from a writing perspective i had this question of how I, i i had quotes from people some that were direct quotes, but remembering what was happening in the moment. And then this other set of quotes that were chants caught on video recorded at the time that were a lot like things people were saying at the exact moment. And just Mm -hmm. like from a formatting perspective, had to figure out like which to put in italics and and things like that. So I think that also contributes to the like feeling like you're in the moment of it all when you're reading. Uh, Bill Ayers is a, is a dear, dear friend. We had him when I, when I was doing the, uh, the radio show with Carrie Kendall, uh, he was on uh, a number of times, but he came on to, to speak about his, his last book on education. And we were doing an art show so we could speak to, to all sides. And, and, and Bill, you know, is, is a lightning rod, particularly for the right, 
uh, and and uh, be, because of his politics and his history, I asked him to speak to to both sides because he kept saying he kept saying, "Well, the right does this, the right does that," and I said, "You know, we we have listeners from both sides of the aisle. Speak to all of them and impart in them the wisdom of of the words that you put in in this book." Mm. How does this book reach the other side or or does it? Yeah. I mean, I don't think that this book is necessarily going to reach like the the neo-Nazis other side. Um, and that was not my goal. Um, okay. but but I do think that there is there have already been more conservative, more traditional folks, mm-hmm. more pe- folks who are more who are just as for example, scared of Antifa as they are of yeah, the, yeah. the alt-right, yeah. um, who who have read the book and I think who have responded to it because it's just people's words. It's not editorializing. It's not me making an argument. I mean, I'm a journalist. Yeah. I'm not, yeah. you know, trying to to make a take a take a position on individual choices or actions or yeah, indeed. Um, and so I think due to the format of the book, it's also become more accessible. For people like mm. this from uh, from the Hefe report, that was uh, that was the the official after action report of 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 this, right? Yes, By the, city? the independent yeah. review. Okay, uh, rabbis also removed syn- the the synagogue sacred scrolls for, scrolls for safekeeping outside the downtown area. Rabbi uh, Tom uh, Guthertz. Good hurts. Good hurts. Yep. Thank you. Uh, Congregation uh, Beth Israel. Uh, we said to ourselves, is there anything in this building uh, that can't be replaced? And then we thought that through, we realized this Holocaust Torah, which is a, a special scroll that is our synagogue has. I mean, uh, if it couldn't be replaced. So a couple of days before August 12th, uh, we just sort of quietly removed that Torah. I was reminded and and I spent 20 years uh, going in and out of Sarajevo, um, in, including during the siege. I was reminded of the Sarajevo Haggadah in 1941 mm. on the eve of of the Nazi occupation of the city. They spirited the the Haggadah to a little farm uh, in the in the mountains outside of Sarajevo, where it remained for the entire war. Um, that was that that's such a powerful observation and capture mm. on, on your part. Thank you. And it it just speaks to the depth of what happened here. We are talking yeah. about yeah. historic moments. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, St. Paul's Church, the night before the first violent confrontation, uh, there's an overflow congregation. Uh, and the reader can feel the mood like the eve before a battle, this, uh, this mm. ominous mood at St. Paul's Episcopal Church. And then the Nazis attacked on August 11. Both the white nationalists and the activists left Friday night thinking, okay, they're completely emboldened. The white nationalists are completely mm-hmm. emboldened. Tomorrow is going to be even worse than we expected. And someone's going to get killed tomorrow. There were people the night before on August 11th that were saying goodbye and making plans should something happen to them. Deciding what family members should take their kids, leaving their homes, going to safe houses. Yeah. Also, police officers telling their wives allegedly, "This might be it. We might be gone tomorrow." Yeah, yeah. Wow. 
but I think that's where, and that gets back to kind of why I wanted to do this project to begin with is that there's this national kind of, I don't know, retelling of this story, which yeah, is, yeah. it was crazy. It was this beautiful summer Saturday. And then like all of a sudden the Nazis came and we didn't know what was happening. And oh my gosh, Charlottesville, we just were shocked the nation. Charlottesville mm-hmm. shocked the nation. But you, you, we knew you, this you, was coming for months. But you, you, you also talk about uh, Christine uh, Zakos, mm-hmm. uh, the Charlottesville city councilor, uh, and what she, w- what she w- had been up against for for a year pre- uh, preceding the riot. Yeah, her, and then also the the vice mayor Wes Bellamy, mm-hmm. um, even the mayor who who was Jewish. They were watching their houses. They were watching their children. Mm-hmm. They were informing that they were watching their their children and and their houses and yeah they would call they would the the someone would call Chris and Sakis and say oh we know that you went to bed at nine o'clock last night that's when your that's when your light turned out just so that she would know they were watching her house this book is also a reminder of of the fact that three people not one person died that day Mm. um Heather Heyer was 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 the most is the most ubiquitous i i guess um mm-hmm. she becomes this unwitting uh and unwilling martyr mm-hmm. and and you 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 kind of lay out that she was she was reluctant to to get involved but something drove her to be in that place at that moment she felt like it was the right thing to do by all accounts she she was not necessarily planning on going but mm-hmm. once she saw the torch march on Friday night, she said, no, I have to be there. This is my community. Susan, her mother, always says, you know, it's not like Heather was an angel. Everyone always says, oh, like Heather was an, a martyred angel. And like, no, she was going out there to like help. She was a real person. Town. She was a real human being. Yeah. And she, was, she went out to protect her town and to stand up for what she thought was right. Mm-hmm. Um, and she paid the ultimate price. You, um, you didn't carry her story through um through through much of the the narrative you, you sort of sort of begin with her the night before was was that just was there was there a lack of memory about her or it, was it strictly just using as much of of a person's own words to tell the story and and then she comes into this and talk about how you chose and where you chose to place Heather in the story. In a lot of ways, she is a main character and yeah, yet she's yeah. the one person I couldn't talk to. You know, I, I had lunch with her mom the the day after the book launch a couple of days ago with my own mom. And we were all just kind of chatting and, and kind of talking about where Heather would be now. And if she'd been, if she'd lived and been able to, tell her story for the book what that would look like um we don't know yeah um she didn't keep a journal uh at least that summer but she Um, she sort of arises in in the narrative the same way that she arises in in the national conscience uh where she's she's in the background in one moment and in the next moment tragically she's on everybody's lips 
she was not a leader of this movement and she yeah. would be the first yeah. person to say that that yeah. that there were people of color who were leading this movement she was yeah. not a leader she was just part of the crowd and happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and happened to be the one that was killed um but it's not like she was a major figure and we have all this reporting about her before this like yeah. she just kind of showed up that day you know and you were we there were were there were there good people quote unquote on the other side who were just just out there to support the the legacy statues and had nothing to do with white supremacy or nazism that was a myth that is not true mm-hmm. i think earlier in the summer there mm-hmm. were certainly some very elderly uh, confederate reenactor types right. who would come down from or come up from north carolina especially and wave their confederate flags around the statue yeah and would what what we might traditionally call peacefully protest Mm -hmm. but the thing is people waving confederate flags around a confederate statue is violent uh, just by the ethos that they are projecting and that Mm -hmm. is promoting violence even if they're not out there hauling off and hitting someone because they have a knee replacement like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that is still violence uh what what's what's next uh, uh are, are you working on something something new or i am yeah so I, i'm working on two different projects right now one is actually a novel um that i've been really enjoying uh working on that's set in 1965 wow. um, which has been an interesting period to kind of compare and contrast with this one um and i'm also working on another uh potential oral history for the future nice very nice. Uh, a Gambian proverb says, when an elder dies, a library burns to the ground. The new book from Nora News is 24 Hours in Charlottesville, an oral history of the stand against white supremacy, a truly historic achievement. Go and get this book. Her website is noranews.com. Thank mm. you. Thank you. Thank you. This was this was powerful and enlightening and wonderful and I, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for engaging with it so deeply. I, I really love doing interviews like this where we've this, clearly thought about it. Maybe yeah. maybe when you finish that novel, you'll come back and yes, talk about it. Yes, I would love that. Oh, I would love to hear about it. Thank Thanks. you so much. Thanks, Nora. For my full conversation with Nora about her book, 24 Hours in Charlottesville, an oral history of the stand against white supremacy, visit my podcast, Playtime Playcast, .podbean.com I'd like to thank my guest Nora Noose and thanks to all of you who listen. As always, links to the Chicago Writers Association and to our guests are in the notes below. You can support this podcast by hitting the subscribe button below and by sharing it with friends and fellow writers linked in the notes below. Don't forget to like Chicago Writers Association on Facebook and join our worldwide community of authors, writers, publishers, editors, and more. You've been listening to Chicago Writes, the podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. And our website, chicagowrites.org, is a resource for your writing success as well. Chicago Writes offers tools and a wealth of information to help you become the writer that you were meant to be. Check out our blog with tips and insights on the art and business of writing by some of Chicago's best-known writers, like marketing tips, the importance of networking, where and how to find better readers, 
the pros and cons of indie publishing, the art of misdirection, how to keep your readers on their toes, and so much more, 24-7, 365 days a year, at chicagorights.org backslash blog. The Chicago Writers Association is a 501c3 charitable organization. To find out more, visit chicagorights.org. Our theme song is Midnight Ride, courtesy of Dino Lovchich. You can find Dino's music, just like this program, on Spotify. And we're always looking for ways to better this program and make it more useful for you, the writer. Feel free to let me know any suggestions for guests or topics that you would like to see on this program. Contact me at William Turk, that's William, T-U-R-C-K, all one word, lowercase, at yahoo.com. And please begin your subject line with CWA suggestion. And that will do it for this episode of Chicago Writes. Until next time, I'm your host, W.C. Turk. <laughs>